a few weeks ago said that as you read the Gospels, as you read Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, if you are reading through looking for the thing that Jesus talks about most, it would become crystal clear to you as you read that what Jesus talks about most is the kingdom especially when you read the Gospel of Matthew, nearly 50 times in 28 chapters, what he talks about all the time, what he was about was simply the kingdom of God. So we said that, as we got this thing started a few weeks ago, we said that the story of the Bible is actually a story about kingdoms. We took some time a few weeks ago to establish the framework through which we see the kingdom of God coming to earth. We said that an encounter with Jesus forces every single one of us to deal with the core issues, the darkest parts of our character, and then to allow his mercy and his love and his wisdom to redefine who we are and to change the way that we engage with our Heavenly Father and with the people around us. So we started in Matthew 4, where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. And since then, we've been in chapter 5 of Matthew, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, I suggested calling it Jesus' Manifesto for a Whole New Way of Being Kingdom and the Broken Reality of the Kingdom of God. It's a nice, catchy subtitle. It's really about God's value system in His kingdom. So we took some, took some time to dig into the first 12 verses of Matthew 5. We call them the Beatitudes. <coughs> and then we asked this question, what would it look like for us to leverage our happiness on behalf of those who have less than us? We'll let that sit for a couple of weeks. Then in part four, we talked about Jesus teaching in Matthew 5, verse 13, where he says that we are the salt of the earth. And we talked about what that means for us, what that looks like, because we said that salt always makes a difference. And then a couple weeks ago, <coughs> in part five, we unpacked verses 14, 15, 16, where Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And we said that there's a purpose for you in your current circumstances. And to cut to the chase, we said that God's purpose in your current circumstances is always to draw people's attention to your Father in heaven. That's always his purpose, which brings us to this morning. We're going to get into the next verses in the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't kind of figured out, it appears that we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So just so you can kind of, if you want to read ahead, till further notice, that's kind of where we're going to be on my Sundays. Before we get any further, let's just pause and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person that's in this room this morning, for every household and that's represented here. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the, the priority they've demonstrated of gathering together with, with other believers to come together to worship and to hear from your word and to fellowship with one another. Thank you for each person. God, I pray that you would just now kind of focus our minds and quiet our hearts, open our spirits so we might hear what your word has for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17, I'm going to read the verses that we're going to be talking about, and then we're going to come back to them as we go. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. <clears throat> Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So if you have, you have open in your lap, or more likely on your phone, a collection of writings that we call the Bible. We think of it as a book. It's not a book. It's actually a collection of books. It's like a library with all sorts of writings. Most of it is story. But then there's a ton of poetry, and there's a memoir or two in there. There's some legal code. Uh, there's genealogy. There's a number of wisdom one-liners that are great for, like, if you are limited to, like, 140 characters. There's a play in there. Uh, there are quite a few letters. There's a number of biographies of Jesus of Nazareth and a few other people. There's a theological essay or two in there. There's a genre of literature that we don't really have anymore called apocalyptic. Uh, there's some stuff in here in the Bible about uh, life after death. But the truth is, there's very little about that. And we focus on that a lot, but there's very little in the Bible about it. There's a whole lot about life before death. So much is in here. And the library was written by a number of authors, about 40 authors, and not to mention all the editors who worked on the project over a period of, of more than 1,500 years. So just think about this for a minute. <clears throat> there are parts of the Bible, such as Genesis chapter 1 and, and 2, that were around as oral tradition from long before the time of Moses, who actually put them in writing. Then you have a, a biography, like the one that's in front of us today in Matthew, that dates to just a decade after Jesus lived. So all this to say that this was written in another time, in another place, literally on the other side of the globe from us, on a couple continents, in three languages, and a whole other cultural framework and reference. And yet, it's the best-selling collection of books of all time. So here we are, hundreds of years later, with it open on our lap and on our phones and on the screen in front of us, and there's something about this collection of writings that we keep coming back to. Why? Because it is, at its core, the story of redemption. <clears throat> it's the story about the nature of the creator and about the human condition. And everything is in here. I mean, love and hate, war and the futility of violence to solve human problems, injustice and what happens when the church gets in bed with the empire and trauma and healing, the meaning and purpose of life, mortality and how short all of it is, what to do with mold in your kitchen. It's in there. It's in there. It's really, that's really helpful at times to have an ancient writing on something like that when you have that kind of problem. How to discipline your toddler, if you want to know. Uh, sex in pretty much every variety, it's in there. Uh, the end of the world, doubt and unbelief and faith and doctrine and dogma. I mean, it's pretty much, you, it's all in there. We're living at a key point in the history of the church in the West, for sure, where a growing number of people actually have quite a big problem with the Bible. Either they don't read it because it's boring and it's weird and it's hard to get your head around, or they do read it and they don't understand it because it is hard to understand. I mean, it's a couple thousand years later, you know, and, and it's written in other languages and other cultures. Or they read it and they understand it for the most part, but to be honest, they just take issue with it. Perhaps you know somebody like that, or maybe I'm describing you. There's a lot, especially, oh, let's just be honest, especially with what? The Old Testament. There's some pretty gnarly stuff in there. Violence and abuse, and there are laws. There are laws that regulate slavery. You would think that they'd be laws that would abolish slavery, but there's laws that regulate slavery. There's, there are laws that put a price on men and women and children. And even in the New Testament, there are quite a few things that are radically at odds with 21st century culture and civilization understanding. And so some people open this thing up, and my guess is some of us open this up 
and feel a little bit lost? What do we do with some of this stuff? All that to say, the next section in the Sermon on the Mount might be one of the most important teachings of Jesus for our cultural moment. Because it's essentially Jesus' take on the Bible. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, I wonder what, you know, what Jesus thinks about the Bible? Look no further than the passage we have right in front of us this morning. And in it, we kind of figure out how as followers of Jesus, we are to read the Bible like Jesus. So let's work through these verses, and we'll kind of do it line by line. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, it's a little bit alien or strange language for us, um, the law and the prophets. But keep in mind that the Bible that you have in front of you today did not exist in Jesus' day. All they had was what we know as the Old Testament. And it wasn't put together in like one singular codex like the one that we have in front of us. It was a, it was a scroll here and it was a scroll there and it was a scroll somewhere else and maybe at the synagogue or at another synagogue in the next town over. Not in your home for sure. Like it, it just wasn't something you had in your home or at your fingertips or on your phone or at a voice command from Alexa to Alexa. Like nothing like that. Was how, this wasn't how it worked. They called it the scriptures but it was more commonly known as the Law of the Prophets because it was grouped into two or three categories. So let's talk about this. (coughs) The Law, or in Hebrew, it was the word Torah. How many of you ever heard that term, Torah, okay? Which can be translated either law or teaching. And the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it's a great read. You want just fill your Sunday afternoon, just you... (laughs) You just dig into Leviticus. Numbers, great plot line in that one. You can probably guess what it's about. And Deuteronomy. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the first five books of the law, of the, of the, those are the, that's the Torah, the law. Then the prophets, next category. That was both what we call the historical writing. So if you've ever read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, uh, You come to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and the next few books in there, all of that. And then where it's a lot of story, and some of it actually repeats because it's written from a little bit different perspective. And then what we think of as the prophets, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and so on. But there was a third category that Jesus doesn't mention here, but he quotes it in other places called the writings. And that... um, At the head of that was the Psalms, and then the Hebrew wisdom literature like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then it was all the odds and ends of what was left of what we call the Old Testament. So we had the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So when we think, (coughs) we think the Law, the Prophets, think what we know as the Old Testament, all right? Or the Jews would have thought, and in fact, still think today, the Jewish Scripture, because the Jewish Scripture did not and does not include the New Testament. That's what differentiates Christianity and Judaism, by the way, is Judaism doesn't have the New Covenant, and the New Covenant is what defines Christianity. So Jesus' line here is, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, or the Old Testament. So the word abolish is a Greek word that's used later in Matthew to to, uh, describe destroying or dismantling a building or an institution. So, when it's used of the scriptures in the first century, it was a term that would mean to disobey, and in doing so, to disrespect the scripture. So apparently, Jesus knew that already his teaching was so radical, so subversive to mainstream society and mainstream religious thought, that some people thought that Jesus had come to abolish the scripture. And he says, no, 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 don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but notice, 
to fulfill them. Here's a little twist, a little surprise. What's the opposite of abolish or disobey? We would think to obey, right? Or to like at least hold the status quo. But that's not what Jesus says. You would think Jesus says, I've not come to abolish them, but to, you know, obey them or to kind of keep things the way they are. And all the good religious conservatives in the room would be like, yes, that's great, Jesus. But instead, Jesus uses this unique little word here to fulfill them. In Greek, it's a word that's used all through Matthew's gospel for a pattern or a prophecy from the Old Testament coming to pass in and through Jesus. For example, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in the garden. And he's being arrested, and we learn this from John's gospel, that Peter draws his sword in defense of Jesus and actually cuts off a man's ear. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, he says, Put your sword back in its place, Peter, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, just a bunch of angels? And how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion that you come out with your swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. So think about this. Apparently for Jesus, the Torah wasn't God's last word to his people in the Old Testament. It was more of a holdover until his coming. So Jesus here is kind of beating up on the ancient version of a kind of progressivism where you abolish or you disobey the scripture and just kind of come up with your own deal. And he's beaten up the standard kind of first century conservative Jewish way of reading the scripture. What Jesus is doing is something else. He's bringing a fresh, new, creative way of reading the scripture in light of his coming. Beyond that, <clears throat> I think he was getting his listeners ready for some of the things he was going to say later on. Claims that elevated himself above the very text that he was referring to, above the Torah, above the prophets, above the poems and the wisdom writings. And remember, this is a big deal, because when Jesus was born at that time, Israel was still under God's covenant, and he was born with the, the, with the purpose of bringing that covenant to its sovereignly ordained end. And I know that sounds borderline blasphemous, right? That, that God's covenant with Israel would come to an end. So what do I mean by that? In Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenant with Abraham that would then become the covenant with Israel. He said to Abraham, he says, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So when God says all people will be blessed through you, he's speaking of the Messiah, Later, God affirms the covenant through David, and he promises that through Israel, more specifically through David's line, that the Messiah, Jesus, would come and would establish a kingdom that would last forever. So there's been a lot of misteaching and misunderstanding about this part of the covenant with David, the idea that somehow David's line would continually rule over the nation of Israel. That's not the promise to David. The promise to David is that the Messiah would come through his family, and he did, and that the Messiah would establish a kingdom that would endure forever, separate from the nation of Israel. God's covenant with David had very little to do with the nation of Israel. So now the, now the Messiah arrives, and when Jesus launches his ministry and declares in Matthew 4, the kingdom of God is arriving, the promise to David 
the covenant with Israel is being fulfilled before your very eyes. So back in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, For truly I tell you, this is a little catchphrase that Jesus uses. It's unique to him, actually. And right here, in the, it's, this is the first of 30 times that he uses this, truly I tell you. It's really Jesus' way of saying, listen up. Because I think he probably paused there just to get everybody's attention. Because listen up, because what I'm about to say is important, and it just might surprise you. So he has that. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, that's a figure of speech like saying forever, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law. This is cool, uh, if you're a nerd. So let me just nerd out for a minute with you, okay, if you would indulge me. The word here that's translated the smallest letter in the NIV is the Hebrew letter Yod. So here's the Hebrew alphabet, um, and here's a picture of the Hebrew letter Yod right there. Essentially about the same size as our apostrophe. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then the word that's translated least stroke of the pen is referring to a little serif that's used to distinguish between some letters. So here's a couple, Kaf and Rayesh. They look like the same until you look closely. Look how similar they are. It's literally one little indentation or extension that makes the difference. So Jesus is saying the scripture down to its smallest detail the scripture is he knew it, okay? Down to its smallest detail, will last until everything, and then there's a word, is accomplished. So if you're sitting there in his audience on the side of a hill and you're thinking, wait a minute, until what is accomplished? Until what happens? What are we, what are we talking about, Jesus? What, until what comes true? Apparently this whole thing that we now call the Old Testament this is what we're discovering as we listen to Jesus was a signpost that was pointing to something or to someone. And Jesus is saying, yeah, actually, it's me. It's my kingdom. It's me. That's what it's pointing to. So what did Jesus mean when he says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets? The Greek word that's used by both Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount and by Luke later on as he's kind of recounting Jesus, teaching these same things in different settings like in the synagogues, was a word that means to bring to a designated end. So Jesus does not come to simply abolish the law as in destroy its validity or to undermine the credibility of the law. Jesus did come, though, to bring it to a designated end. Aren't you glad? You ever read the law? You read Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy? Just go, if you're unsure how you feel about Jesus bringing this to an end, just go dig into some of that this afternoon and uh, just make sure you're just don't eat seafood today while you're doing that. And, uh, and then see how you feel about that. Listen, the coming of Jesus and the arrival of his kingdom didn't abolish the law as they defined abolish, but it did make it obsolete. You're like, oh, so we don't need it. Oh, no, that's not what we're saying at all. On the cross, when Jesus said those words, it is finished, he didn't mean he was finished. He didn't mean his mission was accomplished, but something was finished. The law and the covenant and all those promises that he had come to fulfill was at last finished. And through the shedding of his blood came a new covenant. We talk about this when we have communion together. A better covenant, get this, a broader covenant that was for everyone. Again, aren't you glad? 
Because many of us would not have been included in the old covenant simply by our birthright. So that one, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad. Now this one includes everybody. That's cool. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands. Now let's pause right here. The question is, what commands is Jesus referring to? Is he pointing backward to the commands of the Old Testament? Or is he pointing forward to the commands that he's about to give in the Sermon on the Mount? <coughs> I'm going to stay with me here because I'm going to say both. Because the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus teaching the Old Testament. And he's teaching how to read and interact with the Old Testament. So by these commands, he means his way of treating the Bible, his way of reading the scripture. So anyone who sets aside or relaxes or just kind of has this laissez-faire attitude where you explain away the bits and pieces of the Bible that you don't like, if that's your way of reading the Bible, he says you will be called least. So there's some kind of reciprocal relationship between how you treat the scripture and your experience in the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing. So on the flip side, notice the next line. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, so you don't just shrug it off, you don't just explain it away or pick and choose. No, you take it really seriously. You read the scripture the way Jesus does, and you practice it accordingly. And you don't just put it in your head, but you practice it. Then once you get kind of a piece of that down, you teach other people how to practice it. In the church, we call that discipleship. Then you'll be called what? He says, great in the kingdom of heaven. That is cool. But as Jesus done, uh, it seems like the end of the paragraph, but because it'd be really easy to think, yeah, Jesus is just saying, all right, everybody, make sure you read your Bible every day. Just read it every day, okay? Have a, that's all there is to it. Have a good week. But Jesus is not done. Keep reading, verse 20. He says, I tell you, there's this, that saying again, that unless your righteousness, and righteousness is a very first century Jewish word that basically means like goodness, Unless your righteousness or your goodness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? <clears throat> Here's a little background. <coughs> the teachers of the law, your translation, depending on what you're reading in front of you, might have the word scribes. They were professional students and teachers of the law, or teachers of the Bible, yeah, the law, the Torah, and the prophets. So if you ever, uh, if you ever read the Bible before, you know that it's very complex, especially the Old Testament. It's hard to understand in, in sections. So then, as now, there were groups of people who jo whose job it was to study and teach the scripture full time. And the Pharisees were a much larger group to which many, if not most, of the scribes belonged. There was, they were more like a sect within first century Judaism, kind of like, I don't know, Pentecostalism or Evangelicalism or Calvinism or whatever you might want to identify with today. So if you've ever read the four Gospels, uh, maybe you grew up in church and in Sunday school and the flannel graph thing and all that. If that's you, you have an image in your mind when you hear the word Pharisee, right? That a Pharisee is like a mean, nasty, kind of stupid, religious bigot or whatever. That is honestly kind of a misreading. They were quite intelligent. They were the, they were the smartest of the smart. They were really well respected by men and women all over Israel for their meticulous passion for obedience to the Torah, they were respected for that. So Jesus' statement here would have been pretty shocking. This would have been like Jesus today. There's no real, no real good uh, and, uh, like comparison, but it, it doesn't quite work. But it'd be kind of like Jesus saying, unless your righteousness, unless your goodness, unless your acts of goodness surpass that of Mother Teresa, 
okay? Or Billy Graham, or Dallas Willard, or Eugene Peterson, or whoever it is that you have on a pedestal. Then you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. And you're like, what? What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we have to be even more meticulous and more consistent in our obedience to the Torah? And you're like, I've read the Torah. That doesn't sound like fun at all. I'm not showing up for that. No, thank you. So thankfully, it's not what he's saying. So to make sense of this, we have to realize that Jesus is talking about righteousness on a whole other level. Not just the surface level righteousness, get all the outward stuff right, the checklist, make sure that when people see you doing that, you're, you know, it's about behavior. Jesus is going to a deeper level, going to a righteousness that's at a heart level. So in the next part of his sermon, he lays out six examples that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And, um, and if you want to have an idea of where we're going and how awkward this conversation is about to get, read ahead in Matthew chapter 5. Um, and they all start with this little formula where he says, you've heard it said. So in other words, here's a quote from the Old Testament. But I say to you, and then you get a little teaching from Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth on that Old Testament line. And each example is like a case study that essentially is doing two things. First, it's kind of teaching you Jesus' way of reading the scripture. So as we work through kind of example by example, uh, we'll start to pick up a feel for like, oh, that's how Jesus reads that. That's how Jesus interprets that. That's how Jesus applies that. And there are some commands that he says, no, that's not valid, listen, for today. Then there are other commands where he does this nuanced thing like, Look at the heart behind it. Look at the context. Look at the motive. Pay attention to that trajectory of that command. And we're like, oh, now I get it. Secondly, each example that he's going to talk about moving forward is a great example of the kind of righteousness that Jesus is getting at and that he is looking for. Righteousness that goes much deeper than outward behavior. So his first example we'll talk about um, next time uh, basically has this teaching on the command to not murder. It's one of our favorites because we do a pretty good job with that one, I hope. So essentially, he essentially says that the command to not murder is dealing with a much bigger problem in the human condition. That, and that's the heart posture of contempt for other people. So you can read the Ten Commandments in Exodus and say, yeah, thou shalt not murder, because that's how God said it, because just like in the King James, he would have used the word thou. So thou shalt not, and that's how it was written on the tablets and Moses came down off the mountain. And you're like, no problem, check, got that one next. You know, I'm not a murderer this week, I'm okay. But, but listen, you can still have a heart that is full of contempt and spite and poison and bitterness and anger and an arrogant condescension that thinks you're better than anybody else and that there's just this infection at the core level of your being and keep that commandment so jesus is saying i'm after something more you've heard this but i'm telling you this he's saying listen if you want to enter the kingdom of god and we've described the kingdom of god as what god is doing on planet earth then you can't just Read the Bible and obey all of its commands. That's fine. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But he's saying you need even more. You need the truths of Scripture to seep into your heart and to transform you from the inside out into a whole other way of being a human. 
whose driving motivation is love. Now, I kind of believe this teaching of Jesus is more important than ever, maybe. Because a lot of people don't realize it, but we are living right in the middle of a crisis in the Western church, and it's at its root is a crisis over what to do with the Bible. There's all sorts of uh, debate and controversy in the church on a number of issues, obviously, you know, things around sexuality and gender and marriage and immigration and refugees and gun control and the role of the military and the growing gap between the rich and the poor and all kinds of different issues. And you're like, those are political issues. Those are, a lot of those are church issues too. And what both sides have in common behind all the other issues is the Bible. More specifically, the question of the Bible's authority. Is the Bible authoritative? I know most of us are allergic to that word, okay? But just stay with me for a minute. Is it authoritative or not? If the answer is yes, in what way? Because this is a library. This is an ancient collection. It's, it comes from a completely different cultural context and a different time, and it's hard to read, and we have to understand that. And it's hard to read, and it's even harder to understand. So the, besides, you know what's cool about this? Most of this is story. So in what ways is story authoritative? Is it descriptive or is it instructive? So this crisis, I think, is part of a much larger crisis in Western culture, which is maybe a question about authority in general. Charles Taylor, who's an author and a sociologist, said that we've moved the last 500 years in the West from a culture of authority, where 500 years ago your lifestyle was rooted in the authority that was based on I'm the king, if you're in a monarchy, and the church, which was the Bible and tradition, and then the family, from a culture of authority to what he called a culture of authenticity, where it's about be true to yourself, don't let anybody tell you what to do, trust your feelings, whatever makes you happy. So in that worldview, we're like four-year-olds because we're just going to do what makes us happy. So more and more, this idea of living under the authority of an ancient library of books is borderline absurd in our anti-authoritarian enlightened culture that defines freedom, I would argue misdefines freedom, as the ability to do whatever the heck you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Think about the idea that in our Western culture, we seem to be okay with throwing out thousands of years of the cumulative effect of human wisdom, this is the thing that makes us unique uh, in, on the globe among created creatures. We get to take the accumulation of wisdom and pass it on to the next generation. So somehow in Western culture, we seem to be okay with taking all the human wisdom we've accumulated. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Those ideas that aren't intuitive, they aren't self-evident. They were handed down to us from generation to generation. And so over time, we've accumulated a wealth of wisdom and insight into the human condition, into human interactions. And now, across pretty much every social uh, or every single major religion, every single moral system, every culture, East and West, over the last 50, 60, 70 years, there's, there's a, a trend of setting aside a significant amount of that accumulated human wisdom. Because what we're saying is, we know better. To say that we know better because we live in a particular country 
or we live in a particular part of the country, or a particular city, in a particular part of a particular country. And we've thought, you know, we've kind of bought into what sociologists call the myth of progress, that newer equals better. And out of the, the Enlightenment, we have this running narrative that says we are enlightened, and we are more enlightened than the previous generation, and we have evolved past this, certainly, this ancient way of being human, because now we know better. I just want to throw something out there. Maybe. Possibility, maybe. Maybe we don't know better. Maybe there's a reason behind these stories about the human condition. That the root primal temptation for every man or woman is will I define for myself what is good and what is evil? Or will I say there's a creator, I'm creation, and he knows far better than I know myself? So we have a choice either discern for ourselves good from evil based on the little voice in our head or the, the little creatures on our shoulders or whatever uh, or the loud voice in our culture or trust in God and in his character and in his word and say there's a creator and it's not me. So all that to say this is all really hard to get to in our present reality. So I want to take the last few minutes we have here to, to notice just a couple things or a few things. Um, this is just a few things about Jesus' take on the scripture. So first of all, for Jesus, the scripture is a story that reaches its climax in his life. So read the Bible from the first page all the way to Jesus arriving and saying, my kingdom is at hand. Everything that you've just read is building to a climax. And Jesus arriving on the scene is what it's all about. I think it's interesting uh, that 43% of the Bible is story, and by that I mean narrative. 33% is poetry and prophecy. So think about that. That's about 80% of the Bible in front of you is either a story or a poem. Then you have 20% that's kind of, um, kind of a letter or teaching, like we're reading right now, or the epistles. Or, um, so we're calling it about 20%. So if you actually were to add up all the commands in the Bible, if you want to just approach it from a cynical position, a, a position and you know, all the rules and regulations in the Bible, you're still in single digits, you're under 4%. So Jesus approaches the scripture not as like an encyclopedia of truth or like a manual with like a laundry list of commands and rules and regulations in it, but as a story stretching over thousands of years. And there are commands interspersed throughout the story some of those are commands that make sense for all time. Others make sense for an earlier part of the story, but not for a later part of the story. Not because they were bad, but because they were for then and not for now. Uh, and that's a tough one. The Apostle Paul, uh, his metaphor in Galatians, where he's, uh, he's wrestling with how followers of Jesus read the Old Testament, and in particular the Torah, is he uses a metaphor of a tutor, but maybe in our culture uh, a nanny would be a better example where in a wealthy household, uh, that person was responsible to raise a son or daughter for the master. And his point, Paul's point, is that the Old Testament commands are kind of like the tutor or the nanny to grow you and to mature you. So think about this. There are rules, if you want, or commands when you are young that are good things, right? So like when you're two years old and the rule is to go to bed at seven, that's a decent rule. Not always attainable, but it's a good rule. It's a great command for mom and dad. 
you know? So when you're 25, I'm going to say it's not quite as helpful. In fact, if you were to obey that consistently, I might wonder if you're kind of lazy, unless you have to go to work at 3 o'clock, you get a pass. No offense, but like, uh, maybe you should, if you're going to bed at 7 o'clock every night and you're 25 years old and you've got nowhere to go till 10 o'clock the next morning, you, you might want to start doing something with your life. It's, 7 is not all that late. It's not that it's a bad rule. It's a great rule for a toddler. Not such a great rule for a mature adult. Does that make sense? So there are commands like that in the Bible. Things that are great for then to grow Israel into maturity for the purpose of the coming of the Messiah and the arrival of his kingdom, but commands that are not forever. <coughs> then there are other commands that are forever, and it takes some wisdom and discernment to know the difference. You need some kind of an interpretive key, so you don't just pick and choose the ones that you like and the ones that you dislike, right? That's where, as followers of Jesus, our interpretive key goes by the name of Jesus in his teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount and the writings of the New Testament and the way that Jesus lived and interacted with people. That's how we know what to keep forever, such as a, you know, a command to not commit adultery and what to move on from, such as a command about pork and shellfish and what fabrics to wear together, you know, or what to do with the mold in your kitchen. Um, it's in Leviticus, by the way. So, I th th here's I was on a, on a trip last month. We were in uh, we we're in the Dallas area, and I was in a shopping mall. Those still exist, and this one was on its last legs. But in the middle of the shopping mall, I have a picture of it, but I didn't thought to put it up there. It had a big granite thing, like eight feet tall, and it had um, engraved on it the Ten Commandments. Because what's a shopping mall if it doesn't have a, a big plaque in granite of the Ten Commandments? And I'm guessing some well-meaning Christians insisted that that be put there and probably paid for it. I'm just wondering why the Beatitudes are never plastered in a public place. Anyway, a little, little side note. For Jesus, <laughs> for Jesus, the Old Testament was dynamic, not static, okay? So there's a forward motion to the Old Testament. It was always going somewhere. It's a story. So for Jesus, this is the killer point. For Jesus, it is reaching its climax in and through his life. And that's a staggering claim to make, right? Well, as you know, there is a story, and it's all leading up to something. What is it? It's me. I'm here. It's my life, my teaching, my kingdom, my new reality that is breaking on the scene. It's me. So for Jesus, first off, the Bible is a story. Second, for Jesus, the Scripture is the Word of God. So later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes about how the Scriptures were inspired. That's the English word that's used in the NIV. In Greek, it more literally means breathed out. They were breathed out by God. The Apostle Peter has this great line where he writes about, don't think when you're reading the Old Testament that this was just made up by a human being. Or his quote is, by human will. He says, but the prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that. So there's some dynamic here when you read the Scripture. It is human. Like there's a human writer with a human brain and a human story and a human opinion and bias and the theological system of the day and the, the current culture and a body of scientific knowledge. So there's the human part of it, but at the same time, it's more than that. It's inspired by God. So it's breathed by God. Like here's Matthew 
with intelligence and creativity and a body of knowledge and an eyewitness account and a scroll or two or, or a dozen open in front of him and an interview with this person and some investigative journalism because, oh yeah, I heard about this thing that happened, but I wasn't there that day. I must have been on vacation. So, so what exactly happened with the pig thing again? And he interviews uh, witnesses and, uh, wow, that's, are you sure? That's a really weird story, but I guess, you, okay, we collaborated that, got it right. So there's that, and yet at the same time, it was inspired. So like God was at work in and through Matthew or whoever it was writing to write more than a collection of documents, but to write Holy Scripture. And to Jesus, the Scripture, it's true, it's trustworthy, it's more than just a human thing. It's Scripture, the Holy Spirit-breathed Word of God. Third, for Jesus, this one might surprise you a little bit, but the Bible, by its very nature, constantly calls us to rereading rethinking and dialogue. Why? In order to come back to the heart of it. I think without rereading, rethinking and dialogue, we miss the heart of the content sometimes. And then Jesus lays out these examples of how to read the Bible. In each example, he's beating up, not the, not the Bible itself, but popular interpretation of Scripture at that time. And you realize really fast as Jesus teaches in these next coming, these verses that are coming up, that he is all about context and nuance and the heart behind it and the complexity of the library of scripture. And he wants his followers to take the time to wrestle with it, whether you're bookish or not, okay? Doesn't mean they have to read for like hours a day, but he wants you to take the time necessary. And we don't often think of the, of the Sermon on the Mount this way, but this is a Bible teaching from a Bible teacher, because Jesus is a rabbi. This is his area of expertise. It's just a human, it's just a Hebrew word that means teacher. It means Bible teacher. And this is just Jesus just wrestling with the Old Testament. You know, what's valid for us today? What's not? What do we jettison and move on from? Not because it's bad, but because it was for a time it was pointing to something else. And what do we hang on to? This is Jesus showing us it's okay to wrestle over the interpretation and application of the scripture. Finally, for Jesus, the Bible wasn't just meant to be read and believed, <coughs> but to be lived out. It's interesting. One-fifth of the Sermon on the Mount is about doing what it actually says. So can you imagine if every fifth line in my teaching was, make sure you go do that this week. Uh, it wouldn't be, I don't know if it would be a real effective teaching style, but he begins and ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. And we just read the one time right there, verse 19. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. The very last line of his teaching here in the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, kind of the summary of his whole, of his whole message, uh, this whole thing on the law and the prophets, it's a, it's a parable where Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice not my thing. I don't think I buy that. I'm not comfortable with that. That's so countercultural. I don't know. It's like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. Jesus is driving the point home that the scripture is a means to an end. The end is not gathering information. The end is transformation. It's not enough to read it and study it and take notes at church and nerd out to some Bible study podcast every week and that's all good stuff. But at some point, you have to turn off the podcast and you have to put your notepad away and you have to go out into your community with other people empowered by the Holy Spirit and live it out. So there are all sorts of interesting things about Jesus' way of reading and approaching the scripture and I'm 
well aware that in 21st century North America, this sounds crazy to some people, or maybe to some of you, and maybe depending on your church background, but because maybe some of you are like, well, that's, that's great, but I am so not there. I have a list of questions about the Bible reaching from here to like San Diego and back a couple times. I'm just not there yet. Let me just say to you, that's okay. I get it. This is very far from status quo of our culture. So I, I get the challenge. This settings on Sunday mornings is a safe place for you to process. Small groups are a great place for you to interact. Conversation over coffee with a, with a friend who's a, who's a follower of Jesus. Great place. Wrestle it out. You know, welcome to the family. Just before we wrap up, notice what he's, here's what's at stake. Verse 19. If you reject Jesus' way of handling the scripture, and instead in his language, you set aside one of the least of my commands here and teach others accordingly. So you pick and choose with the Bible, and you construct your version that kind of lines up with your opinion and your bias and your culture and your politics and your personal history. Either way, if you play Thomas Jefferson with the Bible, as he was so famously known for, you know, cutting up the Bible and, and, and cutting things out, and... notice that Jesus does not threaten you with hell, okay? There's no, like, spittle dripping out of Jesus' mouth. He doesn't get the whip out like he did in the temple. Nothing like that, okay? He doesn't really threaten at all, but he does warn us what will happen. And what is it? That you'll be called least in the kingdom. So I said before, there's some kind of reciprocal relationship between how we handle and uh, interact with the Scripture and your effectiveness and your place in his kingdom. Okay, so if that's what he's saying, I think it is, then, like, wow, because... Think about that for a minute and let that sink in. Kind of makes sense. If the Bible is scripture and if it's a story with a purpose and if it's inspired by God and in it is a map, for lack of a better word, to a whole new way to be human and it's from God to us and we shrug it off and we relax it and we explain it away and we dishonor it, then how could we expect God to honor us anyway? we sideline it and push it to the side and either because we don't like what it says or we just don't have time for it then we can't expect Jesus to put us front and center in the kingdom in his new reality and if you don't read it and don't listen to it and don't believe it and don't expect God to speak to you because that's how he's going to speak to you there is some kind of reciprocal relationship why because whether we like it or not and most of us don't our relationship to God is tied into at least to some extent with our relationship with the scripture. Why is that? Because the Bible is how the authority of Jesus is mediated to his followers. The Bible is how the authority of Jesus is mediated to his followers. I love this little quote from Andrew Wilson. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. He says, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. He says, I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, then I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or where my answers remain unpopular. End of quote. Our obedience to the commands and the new values of the New Testament is an expression of our obedience to Jesus. 
So the central creed of the church through church history is Jesus is Lord. And the central message of Jesus of Nazareth was the kingdom of God has come. It's here. Repent. Believe the good news. And to say that Jesus is Lord or that I live in the kingdom of God and then not obey the teachings of Jesus in and through the Bible is to give lip service and hypocrisy at best and nothing more. But, on the other hand, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that there is a creator and I am creation. You know better. Creator God knows better. Let me live into your vision of what human flourishing looks like because I trust you. I trust you more than I trust other sources of my own whatever. I trust you that you know the path to life. You are the path to life, and I trust you for that. And notice, though, and I love this, that Jesus doesn't just give a warning, you know, hey, how you treat the Bible, it really matters. But he also has an invitation. So if rather than pick and choose from the Bible, rather, as followers of Jesus, we choose to follow his way, including the way he handles Scripture, and then practice it, and teach it to others, that is, making disciples, and practice it, and practice it, and practice what will happen. He says we'll be called great in the kingdom. Now, when you hear great, don't think like great in the sense of like fame or celebrity status or whatever, more followers on Instagram. That's not what Jesus is getting at at all. He's saying that if you take the scripture, and in particular, Jesus' teachings on the Bible, as a map for the road to character, and you follow it, and one day at a time, then over the course of your life, you will grow and mature into a person of great influence in the kingdom. A bright, shining example of all that Jesus and his kingdom stand for. Transformed, set free, healthy, made whole at a soul level, where you wake up in the morning and there is an undercurrent of love and joy and peace. That is what Jesus is offering if we choose to follow him and take on the values of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving the scripture for us. Nothing short of a miracle that we hold it in our hands today. Thank you for the example of Jesus and his teachings about how to handle the scripture. God, I pray you'd give us uh, wisdom and insight and discernment through your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds as we dig into what your word has to say. Pray that in our interaction with the Bible that we would see your heart, that we get to the heart of it, that the righteousness you're looking for is not just outward behavior, but it's the condition of our heart. We want to be effective in your kingdom. We want to be salt. We want to be light. We want to be a light that shines brightly. So God, may the condition of our hearts ensure that that's true of us. Thank you so much for this time together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.